0: Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices, and we are very happy to start out this week by welcoming, welcoming Ben Ayanian. Did I get that right, Ben? <laughs> that was perfect okay i it was going to take me at least one try to to get it right but you are a young voices contributor and uh, you wear a few other hats as well um favor us with just a little bit of background about who you are and and what you do
1: um i'm um i'm a student at the university of minnesota right now i'm a senior i'm graduating here in may originally from the washington dc area actually which is I think a big factor in my interest in, in politics and economics. I really grew up, um, you know, right next to the heart of politics in this country, um, and so I'm graduating with a major in philosophy and minors in business, law, and political science. And just I really got into writing over the last couple of years, and a couple of mentors told me about Young Voices, and that's how I got started with the program.
0: Well, I'm looking at a at a column that you wrote for TownHall.com. And I'm really liking the subject. So let's let's dive into your your column. This was published back in February. Trudeau gives us an invaluable reminder of the fragility of freedom. And, I, you know, I know it's, it's been a month now, but it still is pretty strong in a lot of people's memories that uh, what happened in Canada in response to the truckers freedom convoy was really unsettling on a number of levels. Give me your reaction to what you saw and, and what prompted you to write this particular article.
1: Well, originally, you know, as a ardent supporter of individual liberty and freedoms, I was pretty horrified to see these peaceful protesters, these truck drivers in Canada, to be attacked from a lot of different angles. Um, I was weary about the fact that they were breaking traffic laws in Canada, and that should be punishable under the rule of law. But the the government of Canada really overreached to try and respond to this situation. They invoked emergency powers. They brought in terrorist financing rules, trying to liken these protesters to terrorists who were posing a threat to the government, supposedly. Um, and it was really scary to watch financial censorship um, come on so strongly in a supposedly free nation which is you know right up north on the on our border and that was that was really scary to see.
0: Yeah, I mean Canada is not so different from the US. I mean there are some differences but you know as as someone who's traveled through there it's it's actually it's always seemed like a pretty nice place. You know, it's not like it's not like oh, it's going through North Korea, <laughs> you know, the guard towers everywhere. No, they seem like a very normal, um happy, easygoing people. But wow. The way their government responded really put the writing on the wall for anybody who was paying attention. What in particular was it about the the financial response, especially the, that grabbed your attention?
1: Well, what really grabbed my attention was the lack of due process in all of this financial censorship. So the government, through their emergency powers, could freeze the assets of individuals that were linked to the protests and could pressure financial institutions into doing the same and and making them monitor donations you know through their their client base. And so what really worried me about that was there was no appeals process. You didn't need a court order to do it in the first place. And so to go after people's private property because they are expressing dissent to to government Regulation, I think, is really scary, like like we just talked about, especially to see from a country that is so much like ours, one that actually ranks nine spots higher than we do on the Human Freedom Index, which measures personal and economic freedom and gives a composite score to to all the different nations in the world. We're 15th, they're 6th. We're both democracies, we're neighbors, we trade with each other, all, all of this. And so to see it happen in a country so much like ours was really worrying because it, it makes it feel like it's just that much closer to happening in the United States.
0: Something that really struck me was as that was playing out and not just the financial censorship, but the, the crackdown, the, the heavy handedness of the police response that was eventually sent in to try to break up and, and arrest and, and, you know, move those protesters protesters out of out of uh, Ottawa, was that I don't remember hearing any Western leaders, particularly here in the U.S., condemn it. That sent some chills up my spine. Shouldn't they be saying something?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of silence here in the United States about, about the harshness of the response to the truckers in Ottawa. And I thought that that was even more cause for a concern. You know, if this is happening, like we just repeated that, This is happening in a country so much like ours, if our leaders aren't standing up vocally and expressing their dissent loudly um, about what's going on just north of our borders, I think should send a chill up people's spines and and give people pause and think maybe maybe our leaders would exhibit this type of behavior.
0: So. Obviously, U.S. officials reacted somewhat differently. I know that we've had our own trucker protest. We had other uh, anti-mandate protests that took place in Washington. What are some of the takeaways and some of the lessons from the response we saw in Canada? If we're serious about preventing that from happening here, what are some of the things we need to be addressing here at home?
1: I think something that needs to be addressed first and foremost is the use of emergency powers more generally. Uh, Different states and, and cities have... Different rules and regulations for their emergency power use, but generally speaking, a lot of different places in the United States. What they do is they allow the executive to um, invoke emergency powers, and then the legislature can then respond. With usually, um, again, this is very this varies um, geographically, but usually the legislature with a majority vote can end the state of emergency. And what is a little concerning to me is that certain areas are um, not just politically in its base but also in its executive branch and its legislature is very partisan. and so I'm you know not a um, legislator. But one thing that I think we could look into is reforming these emergency rules, maybe requiring a super majority vote to actually extend a state of emergency. Um, different things like that, I think, to to prevent states of emergency from being prolonged, because once a leader has extra powers, it's not Probably the easiest thing just from a human nature standpoint to revoke these powers and to, to want to relinquish them. And so I think that we saw all across the United States vaccine mandates, mask mandates, stay at home orders earlier on in the pandemic. We saw a lot of these last far too long. Um, from you know scientific standpoint, even when we knew COVID was maybe more benign than we originally thought, even though it makes some people very sick, including myself, I got a bad round of COVID. But I just think that from a broad societal basis, these emergency powers have been enacted far too long, and maybe we need to look at reforming how we keep the executives in check.
0: Oh, I think you're right on the money. And, and this is not true just in uh, blue states like California or New York or in, in cities like Chicago. I mean, I I was living in Utah and then in Idaho, and I saw leaders in both of those states, which ostensibly are very freedom-oriented, red kind of states still overreact, invoke the emergency powers, and then extend them far beyond where they were actually necessary. Is there any kind of um, traction being gained in state legislatures right now to to reform those emergency powers? What are you hearing?
1: The, what really concerns me is that there hasn't been a national conversation about it. We're not seeing you know, op-eds written about it in places like the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, the Washington Post. And, you know, forgive me if maybe I missed one or two that had been published in the recent months, but it hasn't gained the traction that at least I would have liked to see. You know, my piece specifically was supposed to be a warning to Americans that Canadian, that the tyranny we were seeing up north could come to the United States and we can't live in our bubble continuing to think that, oh, you know, these things will never happen here. But So I I didn't focus most of my article on reform. Um, I did mention it at the end of my piece that we needed to look into this. But I really haven't seen an awakening, quote unquote, about emergency powers more broadly as the the COVID-19 pandemic wanes. I, I would have liked to have seen a lot more traction in different state Um, outlets. Um, I know that, you know, Governor Youngkin in uh, my home state of Virginia, one of his policy platforms when he was running for governor was that he was going to end um, COVID-19 mandates. And so that's great, but that's an executive action. Um, I would like to see more of a check on executives from state legislatures. And I really haven't seen the type of momentum behind that conversation that I would have liked to have seen thus far.
0: Okay. We are visiting with Ben Ayanian. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Ben, um, where else can people find your writing? Where can they follow you on social media?
1: Uh, You can check me out on Twitter at Benjamin Ayanian. Uh, My last name is spelled A-Y-A-N-I-A-N. You can also find it in my most recent piece, but I've been published also in the, Star Tribune and the Wall Street Journal. But I would not point you guys to any specific outlet as I'm more of a freelance writer, um, sending my pieces to various outlets. But the best way to track what I'm doing is definitely to follow my Twitter um, or even find me on Instagram. If you just search my name, you'll find that as well.
0: Okay, Ben, great visiting with you. Keep up the great work. Thanks for having me on. forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Mike Holmes, who is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Mike, I'd like you to tell us just a little bit about yourself. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, what uh, what else keeps you busy?
2: Sure. Uh, Right now, I work as a with membership in a political advocacy organization but i also volunteer at an immigration legal aid clinic and still kind of on my own time i pursue my older academic interests of international affairs and a broad array of topics after that it includes economics sociology culture
0: you name it well you mentioned immigration that is uh, that's a button or that's a hot button topic for a lot of people but uh, as you mentioned in the article i'm looking at here on counterpunch.org it seems like a lot of attention is focused on the southern border, and those who remain hyper-focused on that might be missing something that's very important and equally could have some some impact, in fact, a very positive impact on immigration. Tell us about the Northern Triangle and, and how that applies to our immigration issues.
2: Sure. Uh, well, the Northern Triangle, for those of you who are not familiar, it includes three countries. It's Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, and one of the reasons... I bring up those countries in particular, is that a large percentage of the encounters that Border Patrol has, the southern border, is with people from those countries. And 2021, or fiscal year 2021, about 40% of the encounters were from people from those three countries. And that kind of continues a trend since 2019 of about 41%. So if we're thinking about the southern border, you have to pay attention to those three countries.
0: And how difficult is it? I mean, look, I, most people when they think of the southern border, and this is myself included, we tend to think oh it 's primarily people trying to immigrate from Mexico northward i hadn 't even thought about these other other countries, but are there legal avenues and and are i guess to to what degree are we are we seeing people coming from from those other um central and south American you know countries
2: sure um and this is That's actually a good thing to focus in on is the legal avenues that a lot of times when people think of immigration, they say, like, hey, just get in line. Well, one of the challenges is if you're from the Northern Triangle countries, depending on your skill level and situation, there is no line. And so, like, one point of comparison is that uh, we can look at our temporary work visas because a lot of people who come are economic migrants. They're seeking economic opportunity of some sort. and in last year in 2021, we had fewer than 10,000 uh, total guest work visas for, on the temporary side, whether it's non-agriculture or agriculture, from those three countries. And if you compare that to Mexico, you had over 300,000, and that kind of shows you the level of options. And so, if you're looking for a legal route, uh, that proves challenging.
0: So do 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 a large percentage of them then uh, still attempt to to come into the country, albeit to not through approved channels? Sure. And that's
2: what we do see. Um, not all, of course, but many do seek seek those options. And if you if you're wondering why uh, it actually makes a lot of sense, uh, a few scholars, Michael Clements, uh, Lamp Pritchett um they have they've discovered something called the place premium, which is this idea that you make you can make considerably more money with the same skill level in different places based on where you live. And some of that's a result of infrastructure, technology, uh, et cetera. But say if, if you're a worker from Guatemala, like a lower skilled worker from Guatemala, you stand to multiply your income about two point six times by merely moving to the United States and doing the same job. And you might think, and of course that doesn't apply to everybody, but there's another factor, the opportunities there as well, to where as of 2016, 4.8% of the U.S. workforce was made up of unauthorized immigrants, and that comprised 24% and 15% of the agriculture and construction workforces, respectively. And so there's not only a price bump, But there's also demand that incentivizes, incentivizes, gives you a good reason to come here.
0: Something you point out in your article that I thought was really interesting is that this this isn't just, you know, a random spike here and there. There, There's actually uh, patterns that can be observed here. And and I like how you liken this to, you know, a family caught unprepared for a once in a generation blizzard. Yet uh, it seems like the United States is acting like a family that's taken by surprise when winter shows up every single year.
2: Right, of course. And that's the and that's, I think, my my big issue, because you'll have you can't you can't prepare for the unexpected um, that you don't know that. But what you can do is you can take account of what you do know to help you withstand those on those unexpected circumstances. Like, say, last year, there was a record number of unaccompanied minors and a higher number of women migrants. And one of my one of my thoughts is that, like, hey, if we know that people come for economic reasons every year, Let's actually set up our system to recognize that, prepare for that, so that when we do receive a higher population that requires, say, more humanitarian care or something like that, we can, we can actually address that versus having to deal with what we know is coming plus the unexpected. It's sort of like to go with that blizzard analogy. It's like if you just never decided to buy gloves for winter, like having gloves, it doesn't solve the blizzard for you. But it gives you it takes one factor away that, like, you'd still want to have that in an unexpected circumstance.
0: Talk to me about some of the, the legal changes that might need to take place. And I'm assuming these, these would have to be done legislatively by Congress, for instance, increasing uh, work visas and so forth.
2: So, yes, there's a few options and everything would require some sort of legal changes like the the two the two visas I mentioned within in the piece or the H2A and H2B visas and H2A that's agriculture H2B is non-agriculture and H2A is uncapped so technically there's no limit but the H2B is capped um you, we had it split into 66,000 slots for the whole year 33,000 for each half of the year and the demand like there's way more applicants there was more than four times Amount of employer applicants on the US side than there were slots for this upcoming summer. So the employee demand is there. And so expanding some of those options, especially on the H2B, could give people from the Northern Triangle more more legal options to come here. But I will, for, for those that are aware of immigration policy that might be listening, there are some difficulties to where increasing visas alone probably won't solve everything. There's issues with administrative things at consulates within the Northern Triangle countries themselves that would require some smoothing out. So it's not a, it's not as easy of a process, but I think if we make that a priority to not only expand the visas, but actually make them, make them more attainable for employers to get um, to match employer to employee, uh, we could, We could see an improved overall system and cause some immigrants to think like, hey, you know, I might this legal option actually is better for me than trying to take my chances crossing the border illegally.
0: And it seems like that would blunt some of the concerns people have. Well, they're just coming here, you know, to get on the public dole and to to be a recipient of welfare benefits. It sounds like there are actually quite a lot of people who like to come here and work and be gainfully employed.
2: Right. And it's a, you have a lot of people that want to come and work and it's, that's, that's good for us. And also say, if you're nervous about like, if you're nervous about illegal immigration in general, knowing who comes here is probably more favorable to you than not. And so giving people that would come here anyways, a legal route uh, allows them, allows us to know who's coming, but then also Kind of works better for everybody because they aren't going to be fearing they aren't going to be fearing deportation uh, if at least as much if they're working legally, and also they're contributing more obviously in taxes um, in a way that's in a way that everybody can recognize. There's there's of course some people that are undocumented still pay taxes in some ways, but it's uh, it's a little bit more complicated and. I think one of my goals is to make everything as kind of as straightforward as possible to where everyone knows what to
0: expect. Yeah, it seems like it would take a lot of the uh, politicizing out of the equation, too, which I I could only see as a good thing. Mike, where can people follow your work?
2: Sure. Of course, there's the uh, Young Voices website. I've got a blog that I need to update a little bit more at michaelkholmes.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at MKHolmes25.
0: All right. We've been talking with Mike Holmes. He is a Young Voices contributor. Thank you so much for shedding some light on this subject.
2: Thanks, Brian. It's been great to be here.
0: Just like that, we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome Gabriel Salazar Singh to the program. And Gabriel, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, I'm certain that you probably wear a few other hats. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do.
3: Hey, I'm Gabriel Salazar Singh, a business student from Costa Rica and a Young Voices contributor. I feel compelled to speak up when the democratic norms are being violated anywhere in the world. Because I've been blessed to be born in a country known for being a passion of democracy in the concert of nations.
0: Very good. Now, I'm looking at an article you've written for International Policy, Policy Digest. Under Obrador, Mexico is sliding toward dictatorship. And I'll admit living in the United States, I tend to be a little more focused on what's going on in Washington, D.C., but tell me about what is happening um, to uh, in, in America's neighbor to the south under their, their president, yeah. um, Manuel or Andres Manuel uh, López Obrador. Um, tell me a little bit about how he came to power and, and where the danger is that they are sliding toward dictatorship.
3: Yes. So Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO for short, came to power in 2018 through free and fair elections. But I denounce how how he as Mexican president has acted in a populist manner in order to grip much more power than the executive office already has. He sought to delegitimize Mexican institutionality, reform the constitution to his favor, attacked the press, such as revealing a, a journalist salary on a Mexican conference, and called for nonsensical reform on whether or not, referendum, sorry, on whether or not she, she should he should remain in power uh, which, in my opinion, will only polarize Mexico.
0: How, how dictatorial or how authoritarian was Mexico's government prior to his election?
3: So, in the article I mentioned the, the, the idea of the perfect dictatorship, which Mario Vargas Llosa, a Peruvian author, uh, validly stated back in the 90s in Mexican television, he said that Mexican Mexico was a perfect dictatorship because it was perfectly disguised as a democracy. But metal aspects of a dictatorship, the permanence in power of a single party and how they penetrated all aspects of Mexican culture through nationalism and even the party even financed the other opposition parties.
0: So what are some of the major challenges that uh, that brought Obrador to to power in the first place. Um, I mean, were they legitimate concerns? Did did the voters elect him in good faith thinking this guy is going to handle it? And then he ran with it.
3: So he was the the disruptive candidate. He was the opposition in all sorts of manners because he opposed the two main uh, Mexican political uh, parties. I think that Mexico's main issue uh, remains in their weak judicial power. As you may know, that in American countries inherited the Spanish-Roman tradition of law, and in Mexico's specific case, this means that uh, the parliament is constantly modifying the the Mexican constitution. In a, in a country where the government's party controls both chambers of Congress, and they agree with the president's authoritarian influence. This is highly dangerous.
0: Now, when he uh, when he issued a warning to journalists, why was uh, President Obrador uh, telling them if you cross the line, you know what what happens? What What was he afraid of?
3: Yes, that's that's terrible. Uh, he, he was basically threatening journalists because they were invested. Uh, uh, they were seeking to know more about why his son, for example, was living in a, in, the, in the mansion of an oil executive in Texas and the dirty deals that are happening under his government. Okay, Corruption
0: cases. And and we're, they were getting uncomfortably close to the truth?
3: Yes, that's true. That's true. It seems like an episode of House of Cards. <laughs> about, right. But he said that... <laughs> He's seeking to 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 make them afraid. Let's not forget that Mexico has has a high criminality rate and journalists have suffered because of it. Many of them have been killed in the in the short span of what we have of twenty twenty two.
0: Yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned in your article, it, just in 2022, six journalists have been murdered in, in Mexico. Um, so tell me about the referendum that uh, President Obrador is uh, is seeking to enact on his, his presidency. I mean, it, it sounds like that sounds like a pretty confident move for a guy who, who may be, you know, standing on, on shaky ground.
3: Uh, I don't agree that he's standing on shaky ground because he high, he has a high approval rating. But it's nonsensical. The referendum is nonsensical. He's basically calling Mexicans to vote on whether or not he should remain in power for longer. Um, As I mentioned before, he has a high approval rating, which means that it's extremely likely that he'll win and he'll only use it to justify more of his authoritarian behavior. Uh, Let's not forget that this is the guy who has said that uh, he has has cited the Mexican author who said that, uh, that the country should protect a good dictator. And he sh- should even prolong his life.
0: Interesting. Now, this is, this is going to probably rub some people the wrong way, but I can't help but to think that I'm, I'm hearing some parallels to, um, to Donald Trump and, and some of the, some of the rhetoric yes. that, that he used. I mean, is, is it wrong to make that comparison? I'm okay if you disagree with me.
3: No, I completely agree. Because I think that if it weren't for the, the COVID pandemic, The impeachment and the failed uh, impeachment on Donald Trump, the second one, the one over Ukraine, would have helped him polarize the elections to his favor.
0: So what uh, what is the future? I mean, if 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 the people in Mexico seem to be happy, um, is it just that they're they're not uh, seeing the bigger picture of of what's really at stake here? I mean, that maybe they found a strong man they feel like they can live with. Do, Do they not recognize the dangers associated with that?
3: It's sad. It's sad because it's part of the Latin American culture to vote against their own interests, which are the democratic interests. If we were to analyze this from a philosophical point of view, for example, we can use Wittgenstein, the German philosopher who said the truth is independent from perception. There is no good dictatorship. Um, Trujillo, for example, here in the Republican uh, Dominican Republic, sorry, um, was uh, a He committed heinous crimes, yet he had a high approval rating. And when he was murdered, the people really suffered. You guys in the United States have a perfect example of a wonderful figure in the symbolism of George Washington, for example, who had high approval ratings. But he didn't uh, want to, to run for more than two terms.
0: Yeah, the people who seek power, even if it's with good intentions, if they're seeking after power, that should be a warning sign because uh, it should be something that they only reluctantly uh, assume. Um, what is the likelihood that uh, that Obrador will be reelected in the 2024 elections? Does, does he stand a very good chance of, of long-term power?
3: I think that the, in the Latin American context and in all countries of the world, it's incredibly impossible to, to make political calculations from now. But basing on or using what we know now as a basis I think that it's highly likely and it's sad it's sad and it's terrifying
0: so uh, tell me what, what the reaction is from uh, members of the, the international community. I'd, I'd be particularly interested in um, how has, the, has United States leadership responded to this? They seem to have a very key interest in things that are going on everywhere. Has, has the U.S. Uh, regime ex- expressed any concern in, in uh, the outcome of, uh, for instance, uh, Obrador's uh, referendum?
3: So uh, in in Latin America, for example, leaders such as uh, Nicolás Maduro, uh, Evo Morales, uh, all the socialists and populists and dictatorship uh, or the dictatorial leaders have given him support. Uh, When Evo Morales in Bolivia uh, hosted fraudulent elections in 2019 and the people forced him out of the country, Andrés Manuel López Obrador gave him political asylum, and it's. And it's worrying that I don't see enough international reaction towards AMLO's behavior because the United States, I believe, hasn't pronounced itself on what's happening back in Mexico. And it can't. To be objective, it really can't because it's a strategic partner. And to start denouncing from now when nothing serious, quote-unquote, has happened might, uh, might ruffle some feathers.
0: Well, this sounds like an issue that people ought to be keeping their eye on, particularly, I'm thinking, anybody in this hemisphere. Uh, right now, so much attention is focused on Russia and Ukraine, but it seems like this could have some very uh, strong implications, you know, for uh, for the uh, the Western Hemisphere, you know, in terms of, of what happens there. Um, tell me, Gabriel, where can people follow your work, your writings?
3: They can follow me on Twitter at Gabriel Sala Singh. there I will be posting the articles that I publish
0: okay I so appreciate you being our guest today here on moving forward with young voices thanks again and I hope we talk soon
3: thank you very much for having me
0: Welcome back. This is our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to reconnect with Jason Reed. Jason, you wear a number of hats there at Young Voices in the U.K. Tell us just a little bit about yourself for the sake of those who may be meeting you for the first time.
4: Hi, Brian. It's great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I do indeed work for Young Voices. I'm the PR manager, which means I'm responsible for helping our contributors uh, to do a great job when they go on TV and radio and on podcasts and uh, and organizing public speaking appearances for them as well. And I'm also the UK lead, so I'm Young Voices' only employee based across the pond, and I'm in charge of managing uh, the British side of things and keeping on top of our UK contributors.
0: Well, i got to tell you, in the course of my official duties, you're the guy who makes my job. Jobs so much easier. So I, I thank you for all of the effort that you put into what you do. Let's talk about uh, how scientists should continue to collaborate with big tobacco. The, for people who don't understand this, this collaboration between scientists and, and tobacco, um, there's, there's a huge anti-vaping movement that is currently underway. Could you set the stage for us and explain how that has come about and, and why the, the sides are aligning as they are?
4: Absolutely. So society as a whole does seem to be moving away from tobacco. It's moving away from cigarettes. People want to quit smoking in, uh, in huge numbers. And so um, in order to aid them doing that, uh, lots, lots of uh, providers have sprung up providing what we would call harm reduction or lower harm products, such as vaping, electronic cigarettes, which are much, much less harmful than smoking and help people to quit smoking. And of course, there's a lot of innovation, a lot of science and research, a lot of funding cash that goes into that, much of which naturally has overlaps with the tobacco industry, as you would expect, but the reason this is causing a problem is because a lot of the scientific and the academic community uh, is, is uncomfortable about working with people who have any association at all with the tobacco industry, even when they are the people who are uh, at the forefront of researching these uh, harm reduction technologies. And that means that you have this weird dynamic where the scientists, who of course agree that harm reduction is a good thing, they're unable or unwilling to work with the people who are making that possible. The most recent... Manifestation of that, which I wrote my op ed about, is uh, with the Society of, for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, which is arguably the top organization for scientists who are interested in smoking, that's taken the absurd decision to ban people who work for any tobacco or work with any tobacco related company from attending its conferences, which of course means that it's cutting itself off from all that industry knowledge, all the science and all the innovation and making their own stated aim of helping people quit smoking and helping people to get healthier, making that even more difficult completely unnecessarily.
0: So what is their reasoning for wanting to distance their efforts from people who've worked with or currently work for tobacco companies?
4: I think, unfortunately, it's, it's virtue signaling. They are much more keen to be seen to do the right thing. They're much more keen to be able to attend dinner parties and talk about how virtuous they are than to actually achieve results that help real people. And we see this much more widely. It's not just in the science and academic Communities, For example, the World Health Organization is a a key offender. Uh, They also, in uh, rhetoric, agree that people should be able to quit smoking. But when it comes to access to vaping and access to electronic cigarettes to help people do that, they are unwilling to do anything at all that involves working with the tobacco industry. For example, Interpol, which is, of course, a very, very important law enforcement organization operating around the world, The World Health Organization refuses to work with Interpol on the grounds that Interpol sometimes uh, works with tobacco companies in order to track illegal shipments of tobacco, which, of course, can be dangerous for a number of reasons, and that can funnel money into uh, organized crime and so on. And so we could all agree that stopping those illegal shipments is a good thing and that Interpol is doing a good thing by working with all the intelligence it has in order to achieve that aim. But the World Health Organization, because it's so obsessed with its virtue signaling and because they don't want to eat even breathe the same air as anyone (laughs) who works within the tobacco industry. They want to keep uh, at arm's length and they won't have anything to do with Interpol, which means that they get to keep their hands clean and they get to maintain uh, their pure image. But it means that you and I and people who are trying to quit smoking are the ones who lose out because there's less availability for vaping technology and there's less knowledge as well. It's just surrounded in this swirl of misinformation, which really, really hurts people.
0: Now I have to admit on one level, I, I would. I, I can see why people might be skeptical. There's a lot of money at stake where big tobacco is concerned, and and I could see where they might say, "Okay, are they just trying to you know get in here so that they can uh, you know better control the process?" But it sounds like there is some legitimately valuable research and information available, and and it sounds like even some of the tobacco companies are now getting into the the market of marketing vapes. Um, I mean, would would tobacco consider marketing products that help people? you know, get off of uh, smoking tobacco products.
4: I think they do, and I think in a lot of cases they sort of don't have any choice, because this is what people are choosing en masse. It just shows the power of the market, that people want to move on from smoking, and the companies have to respond. Um, some tobacco companies have even come out publicly and said quite made quite radical statements saying things like, we should consider banning cigarettes, which seems like an absurd thing for a tobacco company to say. But the reason that um, we're not all you know happy and healthy and able to switch away from smoking at will is because of the power of this very, very odd anti vaping lobby, which is sponsored by uh, people like Michael Bloomberg, who likes to pour billions into it, and by the World Health Organization. And it means you get this absurd uh, anti scientific drivel being churned out. There was a study recently trying to claim that vaping makes you more likely to have diabetes. Other recent studies have said it causes stress. One said it causes gum disease. Another linked it to dry eye. My favorite one is that it allegedly causes uh, erectile dysfunction. Of course, all of this has been (laughs) comprehensively debunked by actual scientists who then look into this. But they keep, uh, you know, these organizations that that often have Bloomberg in the name, coincidentally, they keep churning out kind of rubbish and then so it's no surprise that when you do surveys of smokers and you ask them what they think of vaping and whether they know about how healthy it is in comparison to smoking they've got no idea because of this huge amount of misinformation swirling around it and the scientific and academic communities have to uh, be held responsible for their part in that
0: now is this the same michael bloomberg who was restricting the size of sodas in in new york city you know uh, being a health paternalist to to protect people from themselves
4: This is exactly the same guy. Yes, it's this typical ideology that we see of nanny statism of uh, people who think that they are better than the average Joe and that the average people can't make lifestyle decisions for themselves. And so exactly as you say, we see it with food policy, uh, with anti-obesity measures. We see it with gambling regulation. And of course, we see it with smoking and vaping as well. Uh, Bloomberg wants us to believe that there is, as he calls it, a youth e-cigarette epidemic and so he uh, he launched a campaign back in 2019 or rather his philanthropic organization launched a campaign uh, with a whopping 160 million dollars of funding behind it which has made him a key partner of organizations like the World Health Organization in tackling vaping which is a very odd thing to do especially when the World Health Organization launches what it calls its tobacco free initiative which its main job seems to be addressing vaping which is tobacco free and which is helping people quit tobacco. It's completely back to front. They've obviously not thought it through because they think that we need help in order to make our basic life decisions. We need somebody else to make them for us. They can't get their heads around the idea that people choose to smoke or people choose to vape because they
0: want to. Jason, it sounds like what you're describing is is yet another manifestation of can we trust the market to to Find correct solutions and find appropriate solutions, or must we always rely on the state to apply, you know, the necessary amount of coercion to get the outcome that we're looking for?
4: You're exactly right. Yes, it's a classic case of uh, individual freedom versus what the state wants people to be doing. And so we see time and time again, under the influence of the World Health Organization, that state bodies such as the FDA, they bring in bans and they bring in overly aggressive new regulations and they bring in taxes in some cases in order to disincentivize things like vaping without thinking about the consequences in that case, meaning that people are stuck smoking because they're unable to access the tools they need to quit when, of course, the optimal solution is that they would just listen to what consumers want. They would just allow people who want to access vaping to vape and they would allow the uh, people who are making vapes to uh, market their products and explain how much healthier they are. If you market a product and you say that it's less healthy than the thing you're doing now, no one's going to take it up because we're all health conscious. But if more people were exposed to the truth that it's 200 times less likely to give you cancer, you'd have a much, much higher rate of people being able to quit cigarettes in favor of vaping.
0: We've got about 30 seconds left, but I have to ask this question. Even taking it out of the realm of tobacco and vaping, has the World Health Organization outlived its usefulness? Does it provide anything that really is beneficial to to humanity?
4: Well, this is the great tragedy is that it could do if it focused on things like um, viral pandemics that might be coming up in other parts of the world and malaria vaccines in Africa and things like that. Those are hugely valuable things to do. The problem is this mission creep. They can't help themselves with getting their fingers involved in other areas where they do not need to be involved, such as deciding that vaping is a bad thing and doing everything they can to put it back in its box and make it go away.
0: Jason, I appreciate everything you're doing to shine light on this issue. Where can people follow your work?
4: I'd encourage people listening to check out the Young Voices website and social media if you haven't already, um, because all of our contributors are very, very wise and you should listen to what they say.
0: I'd completely agree. Great to catch up with you, my friend.
4: Thanks so much, Brian.